Goodness gracious, I'm famished. Before diving into the adventure that is this episode of Behold Her, why not pick up some Dwarven rations? Dwarven rations make artisanal, fantasy-themed Bermuda rum cakes in tasty flavors, such as their traditional lemon and Madagascar vanilla, their dark and stormy-inspired rum and ginger with apricots, and swizzle with Michigan cherries, apricots, pineapple, orange, lemon, and think rum punch. Wow, if you weren't hungry before. Each Dwarven rations box comes with a random TTRPG die. Find out more at docglass.com slash dwarven dash rations. Welcome to episode 19 of Behold Her, a podcast that showcases the diverse stories of femme gamers in tabletop. I'm your host, Lisa Penrose, and this episode's theme is love and death, two lofty subjects oft tackled in the tabletop realm. I chat with Emily Kerboss of Black and Green Games about her award-winning romance trilogy. Then, Akemi Maniwa discusses their lyrical game, On the Wings of a Red Dragonfly, inspired by her Japanese heritage and the Festival of Oban. Finally, friend of Behold Her, Friday Elliot reads us a chilling piece of fiction inspired by both love and death. Friday's story is sponsored by Multiverse. Multiverse is an online video game platform making it as easy as possible to make, play, stream, and share tabletop role-playing games with a creator-focused marketplace. I love how intuitive Multiverse is, but also they're a diverse and multicultural team building a modern, easy-to-use gaming platform that combines the best of video games and TTRPGs into one amazing experience, as well as fostering an inclusive and welcoming community for gaming newcomers and experienced hobbyists alike. I'm so thrilled to have this team support for Behold Her. Thank you, Multiverse. Please go check them out. All right, it's story time. Emily Kerboss is an independent role-playing game designer slash publisher and conservationist living in Western Massachusetts. Emily's designs include Breaking the Ice, Shooting the Moon, and Under My Skin, which won the Player's Choice Auto Award at Festival in 2019. Emily also edited RPG Equals Role-Playing Girl, a zine by and about women in RPG gaming, and is an occasional contributor to diversity in gaming blogs. Hello, welcome back to Behold Her Podcast. I'm here chatting with Emily Kerr. Hi there. Hi. So I have been wanting to chat with you for Behold Her ever since I did the Behold Love episodes uh, because folks kept recommending romance trilogy. So I'm really excited. I sort of resurrected this half of a pun, I suppose, this love and death episode. But before we talk romance trilogy... Tell me a little bit about you. What is your tabletop role-playing game origin story? Ooh, wonderful. Uh, let's see. I did own D&D Redbox back in early years of history and read it and pawed over it and dreamt about it and never played it. That was delightful. Um, and then <laughs> came back around in the 90s after I'd been to college and... Um, started playing role-playing games with friends, some housemates who had been like co-creating a world together for, you know, many years and then brought me into it. And then a good friend who 
ran games for me, so I got to actually roll dice occasionally. Uh, and my early experiences were just utterly bizarre. Like I thought it was totally normal to have a character that just was the interrogator for other people to tell you about their religions and cultures that they'd created and backstories of endless lineages of mages and and then to play like half a dozen characters at different times in the same game in the same world and just you know sort of have everybody have this huge stable of characters so for me, I really was brought in in a depth of world kind of situation and very freeform. So it was all just lots of building on each other's creations and, you know, doing lots of homeworky stuff like making maps and thinking about what your character ate, you know. And then later sort of came to the more known ways of role playing where you, you just have one character and you know, somebody shows you what the world is like and then you fight stuff and you like talk to people. And so it was really interesting to like shift to that from just having at it (laughs) with the world. Wow. I feel like what a way to sort of dive in at the deep end of role playing, it sounds like. Yeah, it felt like that. And also it felt very natural because I'd read books since I was a wee little girl and it just felt like storytelling you do with your friends and my god how cool is that to you know just get your have your friends make stuff up and then you can add to it and it was like writing and reading all at the same time it was just really wonderful I mean you're touching on this already but what was it about those tabletop experiences that really hooked you I think for me, one of the things I love most is getting inside a character and very much for me is feeling what they feel. And other elements that I love are being able to be transported someplace else. One of the things I love about writing games is uh, research. Just love that part. You know, just Mm -hmm. huge stacks of books and reading online and talking to people and thinking about what happened in this time in history and what did people think about and care about and have access to and interact with and what were their constraints. And and so for me, being able to play, it just allows you to have this really incredibly rich experience of someplace I'm not. And, and then have all these fantastic experiences with people that you know, and then you get to have these totally fantastic otherworldly things that happen And it's just, you know, going back to making these analogies with other media, but it's like having this amazing movie that only you and your three friends have ever watched. (laughs) And it's hard sometimes because you want to share that and it's hard to, but, but at least I've got those memories. So those are some of the things that hooked me about it. Yeah. And I mean, with your transition from learning this very like free form world building game to learning other more like structured dice rolling role playing games to being a designer yourself, in a way you're getting to share those experiences uh, with others by creating these games for them to play. Exactly. Uh, so how did you how did you make that transition? Great question. Um, I played for a long time and some of the things that I was doing with friends were a little bit designy and also I came up in role playing in the 90s so I am and um at that time it was very much the standard to mash systems together so I think almost everybody was doing some level of adaptation or hack or design 
as they were playing. So like my GM for the the big Ars Magica uh, inspired game that you know I was talking about before with lots of characters uh, had mushed it together with GURPS. <laughs> so we were like, here's one, here's peanut butter, here's chocolate. I didn't do that though. I was along for the ride and you know I was told to roll a die and I would roll a die. But I always loved games. My family plays cards, plays board games. And so I always thought about different kinds of rules and different kinds of games. And so later, around 2000, 2001, there was a forum online that was called The Forge that was sort of a carrying on kind of a conversation that had happened in the 90s on Usenet. But this was a different context. This was a lot of people who were excited about the fact that it was really easy to have a direct sales online store, first time, having PayPal, that kind of thing. And then PDFs were another way you could sell games, make games and sell games digitally. And there was a lot more ability for people to um, print games, not making 10,000 copies where you had to like put a mortgage on your house <laughs> to mm-hmm. make a role-playing game. You could just make 100 copies or 50 copies or 20 copies of something beautiful and cool and then sell it at a con. And and so being on this forum allowed me to talk to other people who were interested in doing that. And then we met up at for, you know Gen Con and other conventions and got a table together and sold the games and like really inspired one another too and played each other's games. Um, and we started a small convention here in my area in Western Massachusetts in the U.S., set the stage for us to like see other people's indie games and to play them and have some space and room to play test them. And that made a huge difference too. You know, you got to meet the other people too. So you just felt like you were in a community and saw that they were passionate about it and you could dive in as well. And so that was very, very like rich ground for me back in the day to start thinking about how do you make these games? Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first game that you created? The first one that I actually wrote and felt like I was a designer is one that I'm still, I've put it out in a couple of different fashions, but I'm still not quite landed with it. It's called Sign In Stranger. And I did it for a game contest. It was mm-hmm. Iron Game Chef, which has gone through a couple of different names over the years, but, and it was on the forge. And I, it was one of those things where you have like, words that are ingredients and song and moon and blood, I think were some of the ingredients. And so I ended up making this game where you are human colonists going to an alien planet. And you're some of the first humans who are going off world in this context. And you you basically use sort of a Mad Libs kind of mechanic where to make up the world. So you would like pull a, a random noun out to describe what they're doing to move around so you might get like roller skate or something and then you have to describe it without using the word roller skate skate so that it moves you away from having it be a little star trek where maybe everybody's humanoid with funny noses or whatever mm-hmm. and you have to think about what would life look like on a different planet and then deal with the homesickness of being in this other place oh i wasn't expecting those feelings all of a sudden <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's that's I, I I sort of move towards those usually, and um and it, it it was really fun to play and silly a lot of the times because you're like making up these wild things. But then I had a couple of moments where I was playing with people and they're like, oh oh gosh, I just, one one friend of mine I remember when we were playing it. I can't remember if he was playing or talking about it, but he had a moment where he re- was thinking about the character saying where the character was from. And the character just said, I'm from Earth. 
because that's the only thing that this alien possibly would have any idea at all mm -hmm. to have context with. Like maybe they'll have heard of Earth. They certainly wouldn't have heard of North America or Asia, you know, like any any other divider. And that for my friend, that just hit him of, oh, oh, right. All of my context is gone. <laughs> and Aww. that's so it was, yeah. So I, that was a win there that you, you, it was bo both a funny game and then you'd have these moments of, ah, oh, oh, yeah, gosh. really poignant moments. That sounds really fun. What would you say inspires you to design the most? You talked a little bit about how you gravitate towards those feels. I often get inspiration when I see something, a story or a series or an IP that really makes me happy to watch it or intrigued or challenged. And then I get inspired by seeing the structure that it has and being able to figure out a way to turn this setting or situation or, you know, set of characters into an experience for somebody else. That happened recently. I I, if I can share an anecdote about a game I'm working on right now. Absolutely. I um, watched a older show called Sandbaggers, uh, which is about fictional British spies in the 70s and late, uh, late 80s, 70s, early 80s. And it uh, is sort of on the Le Carre end of more gritty realism than fast cars and laser guns, you know, of, mm -hmm. of like James Bond. It's more like gray suits and bureaucrats. And watching the show was really interesting and really, it, you know, goes into some of the harsher elements of it. And I watched it for a while. And then I, there was one evening where I was playing a game with some friends online, like these days. And, and I, all of a sudden in my head, I started realizing, oh, so that is what's happening. And like, this is the part of this, at each episode where this is happening. And then they, you go out into the field. And I just started seeing it as, a structure that I could map into me mechanics. And so I grabbed a stack of note cards and started like scribbling on them, hoping I was not losing track of whatever was happening in the game. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like got it down and then, you know, returned to it again later after I was done playing. It's so for me, it's like, sometimes it's just this moment where I, like a matrix kind of moment where it's like, Oh, that's what's going on. Oh, this could be a game. I identify with that so much where you kind of you consume some sort of media or you get a little nibble of inspiration from another game. And then when you're doing something completely different, whether you're like you you said you were playing a game online, I often get moments of like fits of inspiration when I'm in the shower and I'm not thinking about things. Everything just falls into place. Totally. Hot tubs are great places of inspiration for me. Biking, I've noticed. Like when I'm in motion often is when I get my moments. So if like I'm walking or driving or biking, I don't know what it is, but just, yeah, something about your mind relaxing enough to sort of like have that inspiration come in. Yeah. Freeze those ideas, uh, loosens yeah. them up. Um, let's talk about Romance Trilogy, though. So Yay. for folks listening who haven't heard of Romance Trilogy, what is your like elevator pitch for it? Three games that are focused on romance that have intimate to larger. So the, the first one's a two-player game where you two play two characters who are going on three 
dates of some sort. And then you get to see whether it becomes something and goes on and they fall in love or if that's it. And it's kind of a romantic comedy. The Shooting the Moon is a three-character love triangle where two characters are competing for the love of a shared beloved who has their own life and might get to just go do their own thing. And then Under My Skin is a, it's primarily a, primarily a live action game that is good for four or five up to eight characters. And it's, it's about a social circle where there are established couples and then something happens and chemistry happens between people who are not part of those couples. And so you, you're seeing the unwinding or renegotiating of boundaries between people. And sometimes new relationships emerge, sometimes the same stay, but it, it changes how people see themselves and one another. Gosh, so I have personally had the opportunity to play that first game, Breaking the Ice, a couple times. I actually played it twice in one day. I played it with a coworker and then immediately told my husband, we have to play this after dinner. It was so fun. I just want some more. Um, So I'm wondering, how did these three games come about? Did you go into it wanting to do these different iterations on the theme of romance? And what is it about that topic that really grabbed you? Hmm. Well, to answer the second question first, fairly simply, I really compelled by love stories. And also I, I come back to them sometimes when I'm in a place of wanting comfort. And I, I have been reading a tremendous amount of fanfic over the last year in the pandemic. And it's really beautiful just to read about people being close and intimate, maybe when you're feeling a little bit out of your element. And also romance is central to many of the greatest stories humans have written. And it's not something that's the only story, obviously, but, but, and beyond sexual love, there's also so many elements of love and affection and caring and bonding that all of those are just very rich to me. And so it was a real pleasure and fascinating journey to work on three games about it. So how did it come about? Back you know, I mentioned Sign and Stranger. That was the first game that I was like, I designed this. Am I a designer? And then a little bit later, I was uh, thinking about, oh, okay, so my friends are bringing games to conventions. and I'd like to do that too. I'd like to have something that I could like print out and sell or, you know, offer to people to play, whatever. I didn't know what was going to happen. So I thought, I, all right, working on Sign and Stranger was really hard. It was very complicated and big. Let's do something very small. All right. Oh, a two-player game, maybe just two people, and the there was an argument online about whether people could play people of a different gender convincingly. Anybody ever could, and I got so mad. I was like, "Oh my goodness, yes, people are different, but here you are playing elves and orcs and bloody mm-hmm. knows what that don't exist. You're imagining it, but you can't play someone who's." similar to someone you know and see every day, you know, have the opportunity to ask, you know, like what it's like to be you. And so that sort of meshed into this. So the romance came out of thinking, oh, well, what's a, what's a situation where two people are together and then thinking about how you might have some kind of, not necessarily about gender swapping, but just how you might use that opportunity of it being a very intimate, small game to open the door to having a different experience in that way. So one of the things about breaking the ice is that you just talk to the other person that you're playing with and say, hey, so, okay, who are we? How do we differ? When we make the two characters, 
we'll just trade one trait so that you'll be like me in this way that we differ and uh, rather your character will be like me and my character will be like you. And also, again, it's a two player game. So both people are sort of stepping out of their comfort zone and absolutely hopefully have the space and trust to be able to ask the other person if they have questions or, and also you can pick how intimate it is. It could be something like your work or could be gender. It could be where you live. It could be a hobby, you know, so you can just figure out what's a, a safe and comfortable zone to play that. And then playing the date sort of structure just felt very natural. It just sort of like fell together after those little elements impelled me to write the game. And then I was like having all these ideas about what else you could do. Oh, actually, the real reason why there's three games was because at the time, just having a two player game seemed really limited. You know, most contexts where people are playing, you want to have something where more people can play. So I thought, oh, okay, so this is only two players, I could write a game that's for three players or more. And then I had an idea for shooting the moon. And then I was like, oh, well, it's only three players. So what about more? <laughs> and then I had the idea for Under My Skin. And and then later I realized, and this is in the, the current uh, edition of the Romance Trilogy, has all three games and then just endless hacks of them. There's there's definitely ways you can play Breaking the Ice with more than two people. It's It's not that difficult you know like you have you can have teams playing each of the characters you can have somebody else who's kibitzing and like gets to throw stuff in and there's lots of different ways to do it in fact i've some of my favorite games of shooting the moon have been six player games where you have two people per character and it just it's great because you can kind of throw the ball back and forth between the the team or you know one person speaks in their voice and then the other person does and so you get different elements of the character and lots more creativity and so it's really fun. So I didn't really need to write three games. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess it's kind of, you know, my, my uh, bullheadedness ended up making something that I'm really proud of and happy exists. So that's fine. I'm not going to complain. What would be one of your favorite romance trilogy stories, either from your playing the games or from other people telling you about their games? One of my favorite that I played of Shooting the Moon was set in World War II during the Siege of Stalingrad. So it was very angsty, high mm -hmm. angst. And the characters were all the Russians in the siege. And we knew at the beginning that they were going to die. So that was just one of the, <laughs> the like setting specific things. Mm -hmm. One of the characters, that, the, the beloved that I was playing was called the, the Rose of, St of Rose of Stalingrad or Rose of something. I can't remember exactly, but she was a singer and she was inspiring to the, the, the soldiers. And the people who had fallen in love with her was a, a soldier, just a grunt soldier from the line, and then an officer who was the political officer. And so... The story was of them sort of trying to win her love. And we all knew that it would just be one night that one of them would spend with her and then they would all die. And the way that the story played out, it was clear that she and the soldier had fallen deeply in love. Mm. But the one that she ended up going with was the officer because she was, there was this moment where it was, 
she was manipulated or, or just deceived into thinking that the other had abandoned her. And what had actually happened was that the officer had tricked the other into no. the, into doing something that looked like he was going AWOL. So he was able to kill his rival, have a night with his beloved, and then all was over. <laughs> the siege was oh, done. It's it was so just tragic. So oh, and dramatic. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. And she like is having this night with this man and she doesn't know her beloved's dead. It's just so it's just every level of heartbreak and um, beautiful and sad. Oh, speaking of movies, I would watch that movie. I would 100 percent cry <laughs> the whole time. Bring your tissues. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. See, there you go. I do wish sometimes we could catch these, you know, and just like create something that then could share and it's really nice that people are doing things online where people can watch. I mean, actually, what am I saying? Hello, Emily. Right now, it's a role-playing revolution. This is the time when we are able to watch role-playing games. What a brilliant, wonderful thing where so many more people can experience these great stories. Hurrah, hurrah. <laughs> Thank you, online venues. Mm -hmm. What are lessons or what is a lesson in design that you learned while working on these three games? Mm. Working on the different numbers of players was really illuminating. Writing Shooting the Moon was super challenging. It was my second like full design meant for publishing. So it was very intimidating because people had liked Breaking the Ice and had played it. Hooray! And then I wanted the same thing for Shooting the Moon. And so lots more pressure. And then it, it was a, a three-player game, but I wanted it to be a two-player or a three-player game because just it seemed logical at the time to do that to myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they were very different dynamics. Like a two-player game is really different than a three-player game. And, mm -hmm. and it ended up that having an asymmetry about the characters was the way to go, so that there are specific types of turns that you take and different things that you do when it's a suitor turn rather than the beloved's turn. And the nice thing about that is that it, it sort of creates a dynamic where it's you do the suitor role where they're trying to get the beloved interested in them. Then you do the other suitor and they do the same kind of activity. And then the third turn that comes around is different and more is at stake and more characters are involved. So then you do that three times and it creates this sort of interesting rise and fall of action. And uh, and I think I, I think I definitely enjoy playing three player versions better but it's absolutely playable with just the two but since it's different it adds something when you have a third player rather than mm -hmm. it adds a different note stuff's kind of fun and then holy cremoli writing under my skin was so took a long time because i hadn't at the time when i was first starting it with the idea i hadn't played the right games yet so i didn't know what the right mechanics were that it could exist for this silly thing. I was trying to make it a tabletop game and there are tabletop rules and I have played it and that's fun, but doing it with the live action rules is, I think the game sings. It just, it was inspired by a lot of freeform live action scenario games that were written in uh, Scandinavian countries and in the late 2000s, and org has a lot of those games. Yes, they're still there. Hurrah. And just having the emotions and the scenes play out without having dice or quantification at all. There's a little bit of, there's lots of dice in, my, in the first two games, and there's a little bit of quantification, although it's not stats. It's more like 
your attraction, you know, is your attraction going up? So it's that kind of thing. It's very like very laser focused on the theme. And in Under My Skin, the kinds of mechanics it has, instead of thinking about levels, it's just you're playing it out and you see what the characters feel and how they react. And there's those sort of types of scenes that you play out that help create pregnant situations to deal with. And then there's one moment at the end where every character who is being tempted to maybe and start a different relationship or or if they're in an open relationship, then to to cross a line that maybe would be co- complicating for their their original relationship. There's a mechanic that you uh, have someone at your shoulder for each of the people who are being tempted and playing out this scene. Mm-hmm. And so the the person at the shoulder, you know, actually you have two people, one who's saying why you should go for it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and the other who says, well, what are the effects going to be? And, you know, sort of an angel and a demon kind of should you, should you not. And it's complicated having all those voices going on. So you have to make sure that everyone's listening, giving pauses. But the emotions that come out of it and the kinds of layered dramatic irony that you can have and the interesting decisions that get made from that place are really intense and can be really powerful. And um, so that game, I once I had played games along those lines, it was utterly easy to write that game. It just fell apart, fell into place. But until I had played games that had that structure, I struggled with it because there certainly were ways to represent that but they weren't as clear and mm-hmm. elegant as those were. So so that was a huge lesson in sometimes you just haven't thought of the ideas or been exposed to the right ideas yet for something to be able to take a really solid form. I think that's such a crucial lesson for game designers as well. A lot of times we can kind of get stuck in our own heads where – gosh, every single rule or mechanic has to be an original, a completely original pulled from our brain idea when it's so important to keep playing games and experiencing other games to stay inspired and to just learn of different systems, different ways of thinking. There's so many different ways that we can express stories. And I tend to think about role-playing games as just part of literature, you know, thinking Mm -hmm. back to like the muses the Greek, Greek said they all represented different types of story and uh, expression, you know, whether it was epic poetry or erotic poetry. I feel like role-playing games are in there with novels and movies and poetry. And just it's newer and weirder a little bit. It's like a kind of storytelling that, you know, we're doing right now in a slightly different way, although there's forebears. But anyway, so it's it's great to be able to step back and think about the different inspirations that we can get for this really cool literary form. So what has it meant to you as a player and then a designer being a woman in the tabletop role-playing game hobby? For me, I've usually played in contexts where there are other women and people who are not necessarily male or female. So that's been great. I've felt at home and welcomed and like I was part of things. And that's definitely not always the case. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I 
definitely the starting place that I took when it from design was a few steps aside from many of the mainstream designs that were happening when I was writing the romance trilogy. I got a lot of weird looks like, what? <laughs> what is that? Oh, I could never play that. Definitely was said to me. Oh, definitely. Uh-huh. Both in a like, you're you're not reasonable in wanting to write this and in a M, are you sure you want to write this? Like this is that's tough. That's a big ask. That's it. I feel like that's a very sympathetic position. It's a big ask to ask your gaming group to to play something as intimate as dealing directly with romance between characters. That is totally reasonable. And it's a it's a painful topic. I've definitely had people try to play and realize that was not something that they could approach because it's just too too sensitive emotionally. And again, 100% support people stepping away. And not at all that men couldn't write romance oriented things. I mean, of course they do novels, movies, everything. But at the time when I was writing it, I think very much my choice of topic was informed by my, my experience and my, my, you know, the cultural formation of me as a, as a woman. And it felt really great. Like I didn't have any second thoughts about using it as a topic. I thought that, you know, it was interesting. So I didn't see a reason not to. And that's definitely informed uh, my experience because those are the three first games that I really wrote and, and have interacted with a lot of people about. So that's made a big difference for me. Can we talk just a couple minutes about RPG equals role-playing girl? Sure. Uh, I saw that you were the editor of this zine by and about women in RPG gaming, and uh, it just looked so cool. I was reading uh, like the little blog uh, that's still online about it, but what was RPG equals role-playing girl? It was an idea, I think for a book originally, that some folks had had, women game designers and friends, and that didn't move ahead. And I thought, well, it's really a great idea. Maybe we can just do something with the people who are talking about it, but on a smaller scale. And so we did a zine and put together some articles by folks who were designers or players and talking about their experiences and games and games in different countries. The the second edition or the second issue was focused on looking at sort of the international experience and thinking about different communities. It was amazing. I met a lot of people that I hadn't met before. I had hung out with a lot of indie game designers and publishers. And, and so I, when I put the call out, people came from many, many different backgrounds and really, really, really talented people. So it was really a blast to get to meet all, all of those folks. Uh, I didn't keep going because that was just too, seemed like there was momentum there to do too. And it was a lot of work, but it was a very wonderful experience to be able to meet and bring together all these voices. So really, really glad I was able to do it. As you were editing those two issues, what would you say is the most surprising thing you learned from reading those stories? I got a lot of really good uh, editing and writing advice that I hadn't expected to. Actually, in part from things that people wrote, there were some pieces on like art and working with collaborators, but also just from working with these people. And there were a couple of people who they were so responsive and so 
professional. Not that every, you know, not that everybody wasn't professional, but there were just some people that really stood out to me as a as an editor, seeing them as a model for me of how I wanted to be as a collaborator. Mm-hmm. And so I remember still uh, when I'm like asking someone if I can participate in a project or or being invited to, I think about how you know some of those people um, were with me as a project coordinator, and I try and live up to them. Well, it's always nice meeting folks who are inspiring in that way. So as we come up on the end of this conversation, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? Well, I think I talked about one of the games I'm working on. Maybe I could just say the name of it, that spy yes. game I'm working on, is the, the World's Problems. So Ooh. I hope that that will come to fruition sometime soon. And I'm actually also working on another game set in Japan that's inspired by a really great drama the untamed that is more inspired by like thematic elements but but in, um so that's uh, beyond the clouds so i'm working on a couple of games right now so maybe i can just say Ooh. those those names yeah so if folks uh want to follow you on the interwebs make sure they are in the know when those games come to fruition where can they find you my website is blackgreengames.com after my publishing company which is black and green games and um you can find my stuff by emily Carabos there and i'm i can be found social media wise on twitter at emily care and um feel free to drop on by Emily, it was so much fun chatting with you. I loved hearing about your very like intuitive, it seemed, design process uh, and also just all the themes that you explore. So inspiring. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being invited to chat with you and I'm so great, glad to get to meet you. And I just um, downloaded your game, uh, Mundane Magic, before oh. we talked. So I'm looking forward to checking that out and getting to play sometime. In addition to our lovely episode and audio story sponsors, Behold Her could not happen without our Patreon supporters. Patreon helps me pay our beloved editor, Rudy Basso, and our transcriber, Tyler Moonsage, helping us keep the podcast as accessible as possible. Shout out to our newest Rosebuddy supporters, James Aitken, Krista Hendrickson, and Mishan Cantrell. Join the Rosebuddies in making Behold Her happen at patreon.com slash beholdher. Kemi Maniwa is a Japanese-American mobile game designer by day and moonlights in the realms of tabletop, card, and board games. Their game, On the Wings of a Red Dragonfly, explores death and mourning in unexpected ways. Hello, Akemi. Thank you so much for making time to chat with me for Behold Her. Hi. I'm really excited to be on here. Like, I've heard yeah. a few episodes... It's on my backlog. I know it's a problem, but podcast backlog is a thing. Oh, yeah, very much a thing. I think all listeners right now can identify with that so much. The theme of this episode is love and death. Two pretty weighty subjects, or they can be. And I wanted to chat with you today in particular because of On the Wings of a Red Dragonfly, this amazing little game that you designed. But before we get into that, I wanted to hear a little bit about your background. What is your tabletop role-playing game origin story? 
Well, I've been playing RPGs since, let's see, like 2002. I think that was like sophomore year of high school. And I've been playing various things. I've, I've done 3.5, uh, D&D 3.5, Pathfinder 5e, and started getting into various indie games. I think one of the other ones I played back in high school was Ninja Burger. Ninja no, that Burger. has nothing to do with my 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 name. Oh. <laughs> Although I think I did adopt Ninja Penguin as a thing for me out in high school as well. Then in 2019, I went to uh, a local con called Big Bad Con and met so many amazing TTRPG creators that kind of really got me creating TTRPGs. However, before that, some of my friends and I had also created a card game and multiple card games. We do this under the company called Doom Legion Games, and we've created things like Hungry Hungry Hipsters. And I did an interview talking about that game, which then got me to start writing my own games of the more role-playing variety versus the card game variety. What do you think it is about role-playing games that really captured your interest in high school and made you want to create for them? It didn't really occur to me to create for them until I went to that con that I mentioned, but it was always a fun way to tell stories with friends and create really fascinating out there memories that, you know, you can't really create in real life per se, but you will always have that memory of this crazy adventure that you had with friends doing all kinds of outlandish, awesome uh, things. I, uh, one of the games in, of Ninja Burger, again, mm-hmm. my character decided, was in a dentist office and decided, I'm going to go hide in the dentist office fish tank. And the, the dice said, tank. yes, you successfully <laughs> uh, hide in the giant fish tank in the dentist offices. And they're like, but it's a clear fish tank. Nope, nope, I'm a ninja. I successfully did the thing. <laughs> the dice said so. The dice are gone. Yeah, the dice said so. But then uh, in high school, I also did theater. And mm. there's definitely a major connection between theater and role-playing games, especially when you start getting into improv, which I started in college, mm. and how those both intersect with the yes and, the collaborative let's make a thing happen. And yeah, so through college played more games and, you know, go to various other gaming cons with friends, had a good time. But again, it was going to this small indie gaming convention. That's what really struck it for me to start creating. Yeah, I actually hear such good things about Big Bad Con. Um, it's one that I would love to go to at some point when, you know, the after times when conventions are a thing again. So I love hearing that they inspired you to start creating your own games. You've touched on things that maybe are related to this answer already, or maybe not the improv, um, your interest in drama. But when it came to creating your own games, what inspires you to design? What? Where do you get your ideas from? Well, the first game I created was 
inspired by a martial art I do called Aikido. And it was a way of connecting to the martial art and connecting to my love of games. And that it's like a one page thing that I wrote. And since then, I get, keep getting inspired by various things. For example, one of my work in progress ones was originally a ridiculous idea that I had when doing laundry. It was about a game about a lost sock. And I've now <laughs> basically created a game about a, where you play as a sock who has fallen through a magical portal to a strange and distant land and is trying to make its way back to the portal. And it has a countdown, which is days until laundry day. <laughs> One, that's amazing. Two, uh, what I'm hearing is that you draw inspiration from so many other facets of your life. And three, I knew those socks were going somewhere. I mean, it's a universal thing. Everyone knows the socks go missing or one half of the pair goes missing and something happens. So yeah, it originally started off as just a random joke thought. And then I started putting real thoughts into it and went, oh, I, I think I've created a game. That's amazing. Um, so with your drawing inspiration from so many different aspects of your life, what would you say is your design style, something that ties all of your games together? One of the key things that all my games that I've created so far is connection is a major aspect of the game. Aikido connection is a major aspect of the art and how it itself works. But my, one of my other games, you literally make connections and draw constellations. Another game is about, again, kind of making connections and sending back and forth letters that act as a science report. Oh. So I guess the key part of all of my games is connection and a story. When, it boil, when you boil it down to like the barest of elements. What do you think it is about the concept of connection that you feel drawn to? That's a really good question. I mean, in some ways, just the concept itself draws, it, it's designed to draw things together. Mm -hmm. oh, that's a really, really good question. I mean, it's kind of a broad question, too. I mean, connection is such a ephemeral is not the right word, but it's like in it's like not something you can touch. It's not. In some cases, connection is about touch. True. True. But in others, it's about connection, about connection. Now, that's a really good circular definition. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's not necessarily being re reaffirmed either, because that's not necessarily what the connection is about i mean i think in a way for so many people connection is something that people are like universally drawn to maybe not everybody but i think a lot of people yearn for seek that feeling of connection between them and another person or them and a hobby or just connection to anything really just so we know we're not alone yeah, I, I think it's just part of being human. Wow, this episode of Behold Her got so like cerebral. <laughs>
and we haven't even started talking about the game. Yeah, <laughs> but that's a good transition. I'm glad you brought it up. So on the wings of a red dragonfly, do you have like an elevator pitch for the game for folks who don't know of it? Um, originally, it's a Mysterium hack that's turned into a board game about the Japanese Buddhist holiday Obon. Obon being kind of the Japanese version of Dia de los Muertos, if you need a cultural touchstone for that. And how did this game come about? It started with the uh, idea that in Japan, there's a, I guess, folklore legend, cultural belief, that during this Obon time, three days during summer, that spirits come back and then visit family and and, and all the living relatives and you celebrate the fact they've come back. But when they leave, they ride on the backs of Dragonfly. So it, it really started with just that little bit about the Dragonfly and spirits riding on Dragonflies. What a magical image. From then, I kind of took the board game Mysterium as a somewhat of a template of you have a spirit character and you have the non-spirit characters. The spirit character can only communicate in a limited way. So uh, in the board game, it's through pictures. It's kind of a Dixit. You have various abstract pictures and then the living players have to decipher what the spirit is trying to say. My game doesn't get quite as detailed, although I would love eventually, if I have the budget, to make a custom deck of cards for the game. Mm -hmm. Then I incorporated my uh, upbringing of Japanese-American Buddhist and the Obon traditions of that, my experiences having lived in Japan and the Obon experiences from there, into creating the world of the game. How would you describe what gameplay feels like? Or if it's easier, do you have any stories from when you've played the game that are particularly memorable to you? Amusingly, I have actually never played this game myself. Oh, okay. Have you have you had the opportunity to hear from other folks? No. I, I mean, there's the, the few reviews, but I think I don't know if they've actually played it. It might have just been they've read the game. Very much sort of like a lyrical game in that way. It is. Well, I do have like one particular design question just from now reading the game myself and reading. I actually want to read a paragraph from a review that someone left for you. Overall, I think the tone of Wings is calming and fun. It's not suspenseful or eerie or fraught, again, unless you deliberately introduce those elements into the plot. But it is a chance to gather with the in the story family and engage with your predecessors and that gentle reflective tone is really cool so i am now seeing that you do address the tone in the document specifically but my original question was like so when you think of games about the theme of death i feel like 
if especially if you're used to playing high fantasy games, you might immediately jump to games about being the undead or games that are like particularly like horror or even if it's like more quiet gothic horror, more in the horror genre. But you've created a game that is very much about that theme, but with a very different tone and approach. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a bit about I, I reading again the the PDF. I'm seeing that was an intentional choice. Uh, But I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that choice and that intent and how you tried to implement that through how the game was written. Well, again, with the whole Japanese belief that during this Obon time, typically in Japan, it's like August 15th and three days from August 15th or so. And typically in Japan, during Obon Spirits coming back is not seen as a bad thing. It's culturally seen as a very good and welcoming thing because you're welcoming your your ancestors back home. During that time, the one of the biggest uh, travel times in Japan because everyone goes back home. It, it's a major, major homecoming. And then during that three days, you go visit the grave sites, you, do, you clean them, and... It's a very family-oriented thing. It's a very, like uh, in the United States, a lot of people go home for Christmas. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the cultural equivalent of, oh, I'm no, I have to take time off so I can go home and we can all be part of a family and remember whoever we've lost. Interestingly, there's a uh, thing where the first year after someone has died, the that first uh, Obon season is like one of the most important And I have this little headcanon that the reason it's the most important is because you have to uh, make sure to do everything correctly so that the spirit can find its way home. And I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. I mean, even just that little bit of headcanon you explained, I feel like that really captures the both the like warm and quiet and reflective and sort of cozy nature of this game, which again feels really unexpected when you think here is a game that explores death and grief. You'd think that it might feel like sad or frightening, but it, 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 in reading the game, uh, it feels quite the opposite. So I'm curious. I'm curious because I'm Chinese American very much have the diaspora experience. I'm wondering what the experience of writing a game based on your heritage, how that process felt for you. I mean, it's definitely taking that adage of write what you know. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I'm still worried, did I do this justice? Oh, I relate. (laughs) And again, I have this weird... Uh, thing because I've both lived majority of my life in the United States, but I've lived in Japan for three years, so that also influences my experiences on how to portray this, mm-hmm. and it's a bit of a mix of both. What I've put into the like the second day world building mm-hmm. of the festival. Uh, that's actually the that- page that I have up right now, <laughs> and I loved how descriptive you were and kind of helping to immerse people in what this festival might be like. But that is what I'm the part I really wanted to kind of express that this festival is 
again, the, that whole idea of, yes, it's a festival about death, but that doesn't mean it's somber. And there's also so much about taking joy for those who are living mm. as part of the whole festival, which is, again, why it's a festival and not a, like, here's a somber funeral type thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that, honestly, this game feels like a sort of gift in that it can help people in a small way get to experience this totally different look or, or lens through which to view a holiday surrounding death um, than they might otherwise get to experience. I'm curious also whether it means anything to you in particular being a femme in the space of tabletop RPGs, both as someone in the hobby and also as someone who is a creator. It's definitely something I'm pretty proud of. Like, I was very lucky that my high school uh, friends, one, were still friends, and two, it was never really seen as a detriment to playing tabletop RPGs. It was, in high school, there were like three of us in a normal table of, you know, five or six, which was kind of nice in that I never, I've definitely, I know how to deal with the, I'm the only woman. Like that's very much a thing that came up in, with my job because I work in mobile game design. Mm-hmm. But having, and a number of my other hobbies, oh, look, I do martial arts. Oh, look, I'm the only woman in this class today. And knowing how to navigate that is useful, but I never felt like I was, oh, I'm the only one with my group of friends, at least. Mm-hmm. At this point now, I, I really want to try building more of a community of marginalized gender people playing tabletop RPGs. Like, I love introducing my friends into games. I think that's one of the greatest things is having them find out, oh, this is actually so much fun to collaboratively create a story with my friends. Oh, look, there's some rules for it. Yeah. And I love, I also started in playing Dungeons and Dragons as my gateway tabletop RPG, but I've really learned to just love and adore all the indie RPGs that are out there. One, because I feel like that is a space where a lot of creators of marginalized genders and just marginalized intersections in general feel like it there's a safe place for them to create and express their ideas but also you get like i've played indie rpgs where you get to play like a moose on mushrooms or where your dice are all lined up and they're your friends and it's another game about death where you slowly lose your dice and um explore those feelings and you're like i can't believe i have feelings now about my d8 it's uh, indie rpgs are great they really are and there's just so many of them like it one of the things that i've kind of gotten to the point of because i'm integrating myself into the indie rpg community more a number of my friends will say hey does anyone know a game about blank and i'm like why yes here's <laughs> one oh, look, oh that, that topic 
I actually have like five recommendations. <laughs> so it's kind of a really fun, amazing thing to be like, oh, my friends now think of me as a walking encyclopedia of various indie games that fit their niche of what they're looking for. Ah, oh, yes, that is a good friend in the friend group to be, the one with all the game recommendations. I love that. So as we wind down this conversation, I'm wondering, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? I have a new game, hopefully coming out sometime this month. Oh, is there anything you can share about that? Or is it all top secret? Oh, that's secret? This, uh, the, the Lost Sock game. Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm very excited about that because... One, everyone can relate. And two, that that's how you can really find out where they've gone. Well, if folks want to follow you, learn more about you, make sure they know when this Lost Sock game comes out, where can they find you on the internet? I can be found most places on the internet at Ninja Penguin A-M, uh, N-I-N-J-A, capital P-E-N-G-U-I-N, capital A-M. Wonderful. Again, thank you so much for chatting with me for Behold Her and also for creating such like a rich experience for On the Wings of a Red Dragonfly. I hope if any listeners play this game that one, you leave a lovely comment uh, on itch uh, for Akemi, but also uh, like tweet at them uh, and let them know uh, so they have some awesome stories they can share with people. That'd be greatly appreciated. <laughs> Friday Elliot is the masterful tea bender behind Friday Afternoon Tea. I chatted with her all about her secret tasting powers in episode 16, Femme Small Businesses. And you might also recognize her from Behold Her Studios' Clooneyverse miniseries on our podcast feed. Over on Patreon, Friday also publishes flash fiction zines and a death and fiction podcast. Today, in a tale of maternal horror, content warnings apply, she reads for us an exclusive first look at her chilling short story of love and death. Sleepless, sponsored by Multiverse. Sleepless by Friday Elliott. Only a pure iron railroad spike through the head Nailing them to their grave beds keeps the dead from reawakening. We have stripped our minds bare, and they will not rest. In the night, the sleepers stand at our windows with white eyes and slack jaws. Over black, swollen tongues, they choke out words like echoes from their waking lives. Samson. Horseshoe. Mending. Forever. Voices like muffled, tumbling rocks caught in decaying throats. We are resigned to plugging up our ears at night with soft wax and turning away from the windows. They cannot come inside, or at least they do not. We do not feel endangered. It is simply unbearable to hear a shuffling, rustling outside your window and know in your bones that the child you lost down the well has clawed her way back up from the property line, and home to you. You don't want to look, can't bear to, but you will. You do every time. Mommy. Puppy. Flower. Her fingernails have gone missing. 
doubtless due to the twenty or so feet of slimy rock she had to climb to stand outside the kitchen window at night. Though you ache down to your womb to bandage her fingers, the roomy eyes and spongy cuticles remind you. The broken hair and moldering pink bow there remind you. The vacant, unmoving slant of her body reminds you. This is not the plump, pink little girl who picked blueberries in the forest for your pies. This is an abomination of hollow melancholy. You wish they would not remind you. Story. Yellow. Love. Your hands mix dough for the next day's bread. Neither this batch nor the two months preceding have required the addition of salt, for your eyes provide plenty as you need and cry, cry and need. What else can you do with a husband and two growing boys to feed? She always chooses your window to stand outside, of course. Of course she does. You need and cry, and in two days or six you will do this again. The people of our town, the living ones, find themselves in one of two categories, day shift or night shift. Day shifters have learned to adapt, learned to plug up their ears well and tightly, learned not to see the sleepers. These can glide their eyes right over a body standing by the window or in the way of evening's last land work, choosing not to know their brother or cousin or ranch hand or lover stands before them, staring through them and choking out. Burrow. Slaughter. Devon. Rind. Children born in the past ten years, those that never knew a life without sleepers at the windows. They're all day shifters. What must it be like not to be unsettled by the dead at your door, to run in circles and play toss the ring around with a cousin who died before you were born, to see your great-grandmother decaying week after week as you walk home from school, for the children of our town, this is the only way they've known. You tried as hard as any other mother would to keep your boys away from their little sister. When she first came back, that is. You truly tried. They made sport of it and teased you with how close they could put their faces to hers. For your boys, sister's tragic fall simply shifted her from playmate to toy. They meant no harm. It's only natural that you allowed them to play with her after a time, smiling through tears so big it hurt your face and throat. You choked out words in a voice so strained it sounded like your neighbor's wife's, the one you heard most nights murmuring over the old worn fence. Have fun with your sister, boys. Please be gentle. She's so much smaller than you. They don't mind that little sisters falling apart a bit at a time and soon will be as much a horror as any of the older sleepers. The ones who have been walking since the beginning. No point burying them again. They do find the strength somewhere to crawl back, leaving torn, wet flesh on the main street and in the fields as they come and go. Street cleaners have more job security than anyone in our town these days. Not too long from now, it'll be that little pink hair bow they're picking up, along with the ponytail it holds. Day shifters don't seem to register the tragedy. But you, 
You're a night shifter, aren't you? The second category for you and evident to all, night shifters have a certain look about them, a certain flicking way about the eyes and a subtle tremor of the hand, all the color drained from your cheeks and wardrobe. It may not be a morning hat per se, but when is the last time you trimmed your bonnet with a bit of red or blue? All grays for you, it's a sure tell. Night shift uniform. It wears on a person, or at least it does on those who can't turn the taps of their hearts off. It's not a fault. No shame in love. It's just you've got a certain look about you is all. Those long night shifts get spooky through all the sad. Her sweet voice is more gravel than grace to your raw nerves and won't ever quite be drowned out, no matter how much wax you jam in your ears, even if you bruise the drums. No matter how many other sleepers join the chorus, from the neighbor's yards and over the meadow, all the way to town hall. The judge's perished paramour bellows loud enough to, well... He spills dirty laundry, one strangled word at a time for all the town gossips to chew on, but even he can't get her out of your ears because, surely you know by now, the way to a mama's mind is through her heart. When you love someone as a part of your own self, you grant them access to everything and forever. Every few nights she comes, stands slantwise, mocks you with terrible nothings, Purities from decaying lips. Play. Soft. Strawberry. You've lost your breath early tonight and must sit down as you need. You poor dear. So tired. If only you had some iron to help your wee one rest, perhaps you could steal some for yourself and rejoin the day shifters in their blissful unseeing. Terrible that a mother should weep so for years on end, when she might move on. Yes, indeed she might. You may consider the offer from the dark-eyed railway man. Iron spikes in exchange for strapping lads to work the lines. Unbroken boys are a commodity in other parts. No, you said twice before. No, you would never sell your children for iron. But doesn't young Jacob crave adventure so? And where Jacob goes, Elijah is sure to follow, or else feel dreadful left out. The railway is always hungry for the aid of a boy's strong hands and fresh back, he said. And twice you've said no. Your hands wring your apron, eyes raise from doe to window, and you see the boys coming down the lane. It's almost sundown, and you've already felt the hairs on your arms rise to meet the falling wetness from your eyes. A sure sign she'll be back tonight. Only you catch the knowing like this. Well, only you in your household. Seems as only the heart closest in each family catches it. One per household takes the night shift, though none who carries the weight will complain. None would wish it on anyone else. Tonight she will come, trailing hideous innocence in language and locks. There are always golden, brittle strands in the tall grass after she goes. She's too small to stand far above the swaying field, and it combs her baby hair like you haven't in months. Washed by the well and combed by the meadow, this is no longer your child to care for. 
She is a wrong thing of the wild forevermore, an echoing chamber shaped like a girl. She is coming home. She is coming home, and the boys are waiting to make a game of her. They will laugh with an ease that turns your stomach and wave to mother like perfect little gentlemen as you smile to split your lip. Your eyes will go empty and inward, unable as always to bear it, but with no one to shore you up. You will take the night shift while your husband and sons sleep. You will see the dark-eyed railway man standing at your gate in the early light. He will hold it open for sweet Beth and she will shuffle unbuckled Mary Janes into the tall grass and back to her resting well. As you pack the boys a working man's lunch, you will praise the Lord and ask his forgiveness all at once. You will not say no a third time. Find more from Friday at FridayElliot.com, including a link to her Patreon. That's two L's and two T's. Or follow her at FridayElliot or at FridayT. Thank you, Emily, Akemi, and Friday for sharing your stories of love and death with us today. Huge thank you to Multiverse for sponsoring Friday's short story and Dwarven Rations for sponsoring this episode. Thank you, as always, to Rudy Basso for editing For Thine Ears. And thank you a million thank yous to our Patreon supporters, who you can join at patreon.com slash behold her. Till next time, Rose Buddies.